Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am your host, John Yargo. Stanley Cavell's essay, Companionable Thinking at First Blush, is an exploration of the ethics of eating meat. Cavell's essay is also a response to his friend and fellow philosopher Cora Diamond's essay titled, The The Difficulty of Reality and the Difficulty of Philosophy, and with J.M. Kudzir's The Lives of Animals. And it is also an exploration of what it means to be a companionable thinker to respond to another person's way of being, perhaps even a non-human animal's way of being. What Cabell does not do in that essay is explain the title. Maybe the title is explaining what the essay is doing. Maybe it's in his reflection on what it means to do philosophy as a social practice, or to the perils of making sense of our epistemological restlessness when prevailing norms of society seem so often at odds with what we think is moral or righteous. Early in Cabell's essay, he narrates how he came to companionably think with Cora Diamond. Quote, rereading her paper made so strong an impression upon me that I came to feel compelled to articulate a response to it, however unsure I felt my philosophical ground might prove to be, end quote. That generative feeling of uncertainty and compelled conversing of critical self-assertion and self-reflective mutability is very much reflected in a special new volume of Spencer studies titled Companionable Thinking, Spencer With. As guest editors of this collection of essays, Namrata Rao, Joe Moshinska, and David Hillman have collected a range of essays. Each essay in this issue makes a match between Spencer's work and a philosopher or theorist, from Julia Serrano and Xian Yai to W.E.B. Du Bois and Eduardo Viveras de Castro from Adorno to Wittgenstein. Welcome to the podcast, Joe, David, and Namrata. Thanks so much Hi. for having us. I would like to go around with brief introductions. Can you share your names and institutional affiliations? Tell us what your general research areas are and tell us what you find companionable in Edmund Spencer. Joe, can you start us off? 
Sure, thanks. Um, I'm Joe Mashenska. I teach English at the University of Oxford, um, where I'm a fellow at University College. Um, I work on various topics and questions and authors across um, 16th and 17th century. Um, and uh, Spencer is actually, I suppose, the thread of continuity between the various things I've worked on. So I had a chapter on him in my first book, which is about the sense of touch. I then worked on Ken Elm Digby, who was one of the earliest um, serious critics of Spencer's work. Um, he, he was at the kind of culmination of my book about, um, of my book Iconoclasm as Child's Play, which is about giving holy things to children as toys. Spencer pops up in all of these different kinds of projects. And that reflects the, the, the place that he has in my reading and thinking life in various ways. Like he, he feels like he's always in the back of my mind. Um, and uh, always insinuating his ways into whatever I happen to be thinking about in a way that is, I suppose, kind of delightful and slightly sinister by turns. There's a feeling that, um, you know, at times it's wonderful to find yourself back in the world of the Fairy Queen, no matter what you thought you were thinking about. And at other times there's a slightly strange feeling of your, of your ideas being kind of taken over or co-opted by this author from several... Um, hundred years ago and that feeling of um, Spencer popping up unexpectedly which has been very much true of my experience reading thinking about teaching him um, is definitely um, one of the instigating um, sort of ideas for this edited collection as well. Amrata can you introduce yourself? Yes of course and um, thanks so much for having us again. So I'm Nam Rao and I teach early modern literature at the University of York. Um, and I'm particularly interested in poetry and poetics, especially in Spencer and Milton, and in the history of poetic forms and literary criticism, um, and in the intersections between literature and intellectual history, um, more broadly speaking. So what's companionable about Spencer? Um, it's a helpful question, I think, especially when there's so much about his writing that's inhospitable. Um, and so much of which is being kind of reckoned with now in contemporary criticism. For me, The Fairy Queen is just such a strange poem and I haven't sort of stopped thinking about it since I first read it about a decade ago. I'm especially drawn to its form from the combination of freedom and constraint in its technique, to the problems of allegory and exemplarity the way it continually returns to the disturbances between the universal and particular, and following on from that to its um, notorious self-reflexiveness. So it's sort of similar to Joe, really, the way it kind of worms its way in, no matter what you're thinking about at the moment. David, would you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is David Hillman. I'm Associate Professor of English at the University of Cambridge. I teach also at King's College, Cambridge. And I am, uh, unlike Joe and Nam, primarily a Shakespeare uh, scholar. Um, I've written about the history of the body, about uh, philosophy and literature in relation to Shakespeare, and I'm particularly interested in psychoanalysis and literature. Um, in the prehistory of this project, I was something like a, a kind of anti-Spencerian. Um, not only did I not find his work compelling, um, I actually found it quite inimical to my interests. Uh, I guess partly what I'm thinking of here is, is the kind of sinister aspect that Joe was talking about, the way it, as Nam said, worms its way in. Um, I was very resistant to that. And it's only really through companion thinkers like Joe and Nam 
that I've achieved a state of nirvana, um, of higher consciousness, and and uh, understood um, just how wonderful Spencer is, and begun to appreciate, um, yeah, the compellingness of Spencer. Um, it's it's fantastically capacious and seriously weird writing, and the more you look at it, the more it yields. I guess um, what grabs me and keeps grabbing me now about Spencer is, is the kind of sheer play of language. Um, the way that Spencer keeps making or uh, finding words to be endlessly generative of more words uh, and therefore more thoughts. Um, so I guess uh, to summarize, you could say that um, when I took Spencer at his word, I didn't like him. But when you take Spencer at his words, plural, I came to love him. I like how we're already generating so many great uh, words here. Delightful, sinister, inhospitable, inimical, nirvana, fantastically capacious. Um, we're, we're off to a great start. The um, first um, group of essays after the introduction in this um, volume um, are companionable thinking with. And David, you took up the word companionable. Can you walk us through that short essay? Yeah, um, so the essay comes, as you mentioned already, John, in your introduction from uh, Stanley Cavell's essay called Companionable Thinking. Um, now, Cavell was one of my PhD supervisors at Harvard when I was a PhD student. And um, I guess one of the reasons that I wanted him to be one of my supervisors was precisely how companionable I found his thinking. Um, how helpful it is to think with and alongside and against. Um, so it's companionable in the sense that I arrive at in this short introductory essay by setting side by side, pairing Cavell with Spencer's uh, uses of the word companionable, or actually doesn't use the word companionable, but he uses the word companion um, repeatedly and in interesting ways. So um, the sense that I arrive at is something like uh, uh, it involves mutuality, generosity, uh, and care for the other, as well as often provocation, uh, partiality, contingency. And those are the uses that we wanted to take into this volume. So Namrata. I'll, I'll stop there. N Namrata, you, you take up uh, thinking. Can you walk us through that essay? Yeah, thank you. Um, so, as you say, I thought about the second word in our title, the activity of thinking. Um, and this introductory essay explores a few things. It's interested in how thinking works and in how it both sort of produces and presupposes relation. It's interested in the connections between thinking and allegory and the kinds of thinking allegory encourages and curtails. And finally, it's interested in how establishing companionability foregrounds the leading role of the critic and centers the turns of speculative thought. And so I touch on a few scenes of thinking from Spencer's poetry in the essay, um, from its first use in The Fairy Queen, which actually marks its failure to happen, to astonishment and the repeated stopping of thought in the Amoretti to the Red Cross Knight's visionary moment in Canto 10 with um, his weird companion um, contemplation, which is a moment that seems really solitary at first, 
but grows oddly sociable, oddly companionable. And finally, I think a little about how the critics in this volume, in making a pair of texts speak to one another, follow the common cue of philosophy and poetry in inviting the as if or the potential mood, the grammar of possibility. Excellent. Um, Joe, jo, in your short essay, you talk about with as a kind of keyword. Can you walk us through that essay? Sure, thanks, John. Um, so I might be wrong about this. David and Ham can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't actually remember a moment in the genesis of this volume when we explicitly decided that the essays would be titled Spencer with so-and-so. It just kind of happened. It kind of came about as the most as the most suitable um, formula. I think from the start, it just seemed right. Um, so each, each essay in the volume is subtitled Spencer with so-and-so. Um, and this short essay in the introduction was a chance to return to that decision and reflect a bit on it and, and try and work out, I think, why it felt so right and proper from the get-go. Um, so I start off by, by asking, what is the difference between an essay titled Spencer and so-and-so, which I suppose would be the most obvious alternative and Spencer with, and, and, and the sense we wanted to provide there of um, thinkers being set um, alongside or in relation to one another, rather than kind of conjoined in the ways that we, um, that we might tend instinctively to do that. You know, these are not, you know, a Derridian reading of Spencer, a Wittgensteinian reading of Spencer. It's not about applying one body of thought to the other. Um, but that notion of application became quite useful to, to, um, to think about the stakes of the word in Spencer's own poetry. So I then, I think what we each did in our sections of the introduction were sort of take our, our keyword actually into Spencer's work and see what we found there. And I did this with with, uh, with, with um, which is of course a very different kind of enterprise because it's, it, it's a word that's used so often. Um, but one thing that you see from the very outset of the poem, from the, from the first time it's used, which is in the proem to book one, is a kind of interplay between two ways of um, understanding with, or two, two versions of with. One, um, which I call the, the um, companionable use. So, so being with someone in a way you might be with a, a friend or an accomplice or a, or, or a companion of some kind. And then this other use of it, which is more instrumental. So the way you might do something with a tool, um, with an instrument. Um, and that seemed to, um, again, reflect the kind of experiences I think we were all describing a moment ago of reading Spencer, that, that, that sense that he's endlessly companionable in the sense that he will, um, you know, fall into step with you in whatever you're thinking about. And on the other hand, this sense that he is an instrument, uh, the, the, or that his poetry is a kind of instrument with which you're very aware that things are being done to you as you read, or that you might be then tempted to do things with as a critic in that, in that stronger sense. So, um, Withness ended up feeling, I think, useful to us as a way of um, construing this companionable exercise because it has room within it uh, for, for, for both of these sets of resonances. And that's what my essay um, tries to set up and explore. And maybe this goes back to um, David bringing up Stanley Cavell and the way he put together essays, but something you discuss in your introduction is that um, each of these essays is attempting to break the familiarity of certain associations, like Spencer and Shakespeare, or something like that, Spencer and Milton. So finding um, unlikely correspondences between thinkers, that's one of the goals of this volume, right? I think that's definitely right. Yeah, I was thinking back as David spoke, I never got the chance to meet Stanley Cavell, unfortunately, a great 
great sort of intellectual um, hero of mine in similar ways. But I was remembering the first time I looked at the um, at the contents page of Must We Mean What We Say, and it's and, and what part of what struck me so much was just the list of the list of topics for its chapters or its essays, which range from Wittgenstein to Kierkegaard to Beckett to Shakespeare. And even before I started, there was that sense of what an interesting mind that sees all of these things as belonging together in a volume um, and brings them together in a volume. Um, and obviously this is very different having a co-authored special issue, but I would like to think that the contents page that we've brought together has something of that sense of, wow, I didn't realize these things could all could all kind of converge in, in you know, um, in a single volume. And that feels kind of Cavellian to me in a certain way. And, and I love that point you were making, Namrata, about um, the, the first instance of thinking in this, in Spencer's poetry is in some ways a failure to think or a, a failure to fulfill the promise of thinking. D David, you had something? No, I was just going to add to Joe's uh, uh, sense of that title page that um, an unlikely companion to Spencer is uh, David Hillman. <laughs> I, I I didn't think I would ever, um, you know, have much to do with Spencer, let alone edit a whole six hundred page volume on Spencer. Um, so so that is another kind of piece of evidence in thinking about how capacious Spencer is that he can include even me. <laughs> Excellent. Um, before we get into the content of the volume, there's so many wonderful essays, um, and I hope to touch on many of them, if not all. Um, I want to talk about the process of putting together a guest issue of an academic journal. Um, how did you arrive at this topic? How did it land with Spencer Studies? Uh, Joe. Thanks, John. Um, so I suppose the, the most direct um, kind of ancestor of this volume uh, or ancestors was an exchange that I had um, a number of years ago now with Gordon Teske in Spencer Review. Um, and so for those who are not um, fully up to speed with the inner workings of the Spencer world, Spencer Review is an online journal, um, a kind of counterpart to Spencer Studies, which, which tends to offer slightly more occasional um, or varyingly formed essays um, on Spencer um, and Gordon had written a piece for that um, which was a kind of a kind of paired review of Andrew, of, of Andrew Hadfield's Spencer biography and a biography of Derrida and he'd used that as an occasion to put Spencer and Derrida's work into conversation with one another in a way that was just really exciting and, and fun um, and also selfishly gave me an excuse to return to some thinking I'd done some years before about Spencer and Hegel when I'd been um, in graduate school and taking classes on the two of them simultaneously and started to get interested in some of those connections. But I kind of thought, well, I'll never have an excuse to write about this. You know, it's such an unlikely and a niche topic. Um, and Gordon's essay uh, gave me a really nice occasion to do that. So I wrote this piece for Spencer Review um, in response. And just something about that whole exercise, the, the, the responding to another scholar whose work I really admired. Um, so that kind of companionable, you know, the way in which his writing had kind of had sort of sort of created a space within which I felt able to do something and also the bringing together of these two authors I was interested in um, and also a, an opportunity to reflect upon what was involved in doing that why these kind of cross-temporal juxtapositions might be interesting why Spencer might might offer particularly um, sort of rich or, or useful affordances for that it just seemed like a it, it was one of my favorite um, sort of moments um, in my in my academic life and it just made me think that there, there, there might be more uh, more to do here 
uh, more scope for work of this kind of sort. But the Spencer Review was great for that exchange, but it doesn't offer um, the kind of space that a full um, special issue uh, does. And Spencer Studies, uh, which I'm on the editorial board of as well, um, has been doing these special issues um, really interestingly um, and, and framing some of them around particular philosophical, conceptual, political questions. So there was, a, there was one some years ago now on Neoplatonism, more recently, um, really interesting issue on post-humanism, co-edited by Melissa Sanchez and Aisha Ramachandran. Um, more recently still, we, I kind of knew this was in, in, in the pipeline as we were thinking about RSA, the volume on race edited by Kim Coles and Dennis Britton. Um, and so it just seemed like a really likely um, forum for this kind of thing. So I approached the editors, they were amenable. I spoke with David and Nam about co-editing. Um, I thought it would mesh well with their respective interests um, in different ways, um, I, I, and I was confident, and fortunately this proved to be a well-placed confidence that my friendship with each of them was strong enough to survive the experience of co-editing a volume together, which I think is a very important thing to acknowledge. There is a certain risk involved in, in uh, forging an editorial group out of, um, out of friendships. Um, but it's been a thorough delight to do that. So yeah, that's how it, that's um, roughly speaking how it came about. So, so it began pretty much as an informal kind of pitch where you sort of talked yes. to the other members of the editorial board and then it kind of gained momentum? Just directly to the editors. So Spencer Studies has has three editors um, and so and then a larger editorial board. So um, I went to the editors with it in the first instance. I think it probably helped. As I said, I think that I think the Spencer, uh, this may not be true for all special issues. I think others that have a, you know, that have a clear theme. I think because we were kind of inventing an idea that was our theme. It was a slightly trickier sell, perhaps, than than something like, you know, the Spencer, the the, the post-humanism issue or the race issue, which are so so brilliant, but kind of they they kind of make a case for themselves in a certain way. Um, I think it probably helped that that um, the reason I mentioned the Spencer review piece is I could at least point to that and say this is the kind of thing we we have in mind, um, and then, and and then suggest that it would also take off in certain ways. You know, I, I I'm really keen as I said before and I think this will probably come back in certain parts of our discussion I think I, I hope our volume also indicates the ways in which certain kinds of work make space for other kinds of work to happen right and we're hoping this will happen with this issue um, I, I really felt with this with the special issues of um, with the post-humanism issue and the race issue I, I, I hope in certain ways we are continuing the work of those issues where we're kind of inhabiting certain kinds of spaces that those issues opened up and so I think that was that was a helpful way to be thinking from the outset. And I think anyone considering a special issue, um, it's useful, I think, to be able to point to the kind of work pre-existing issues have done and see how it connects conceptually, if not directly in terms of the thing. Yeah, yeah. I think Spencer Studies is really doing a remarkable job with with figuring out a way to kind of kind of um, facilitate discussions that are kind of fresh and, and original, finding new ways to use the academic journal in fresh and, and distinctive ways. Um, and, and I think your this volume contributes to that. Um, in the first section of essays, um, which is a suite titled on uh, titled Companionable Bodies, you have four essays and a response. Kat Addis talks about Sylvia Winter's work on the conception of man in the era of the plantation of scene. Supriya Chaudhari looks at Donna Haraway in ideas of kinship. And Megan Bauman applies uh, Rosemary's um, Garland Thompson's 
uh, writing on staring to Spencer. Talk to me about one thing from each of these essays, Joe, that bring something um, fresh and distinctive to our understanding of Spencer's poetry. Sure. Um, I'll just say briefly first that the I think these three that you've just mentioned as a group really well capture um, some of the larger ambitions of the volume that you've already pointed towards in that in the, um, that there's a kind of combination here, I think, of intellectual companions for Spencer um, who might be more familiar to early modernists and others um, who might be less familiar. Speaking personally, that's certainly the case. I was, you know, somewhat familiar with Haraway um, in advance of reading these, es these essays, as I'm sure quite a lot of people will be, whereas Winter and Garland Thompson were people who I, I, I knew of but had, had barely read. And so it was a real pleasure to be introduced to their work um, in this context. Um, so Kat's account of Sylvia Winter, who's a polymathic uh, Caribbean intellectual extraordinary figure, um, I think one of the things that's really striking about that about that essay is she returns to and sort of transforms and shows Winter transforming and reclaiming this category of humanism and of the and of the human, obviously a, a key category for early modern studies, but but offers this really exciting way in which humanism as a category might be susceptible to a kind of a kind of reenchantment. She talks about this reenchanted humanism. Um, so, um, and, and that this might come about in particular with the poem via fleeting marginal figures. Um, she, she has an especially wonderful re uh, reading of the bear baby in book six of the poem. Um, so rather than, again, can, uh, returning to the, to the thinking done in the post-humanism volume, rather than humanism as something that has to be, or has been gone beyond, something that can be returned to and, and transformed in that way is really exciting to me. Um, Shukriya's essay on Haraway, um, again, even within its uh, confines, not just the Haraway-Spencer uh, juxtaposition, but brings together Haraway's thought and Lucretius and Lucretian theories of matter in a really interesting way. And, um, and shows by doing this, um, she has this wonderful phrase, she says that Haraway's writing um, is, quote, thickly peopled like Spencer's by the thoughts of others. I think that's a wonderful um, line, but also a kind of slogan for the volume as a whole in certain ways, thinking about how the thought of one person can be thickly peopled by other thoughts. Um, it's something she brings out really wonderfully via the kind of uh, turbulence of matter um, in Haraway and in, and in Spencer. And then Megan in her essay um, returns to a much discussed theme in Spencer studies, uh, vision and visuality. Um, but she approaches it in a new way by showing how Rosemary Garland Thompson's account of, um, the, the, of the forms of staring to which non-normative and, and disabled bodies in particular are subjected um, resonates with scenes of violence in the poem and also with certain aspects of um, the kind of um, specularity of anatomical and uh, practice in the Renaissance. It's a really interesting triangulation, as with Shapira's essay, actually, of Spencer, the theorist that she's bringing into play, and then other aspects of early modern culture and practice. One of those thinkers for me, I mean, you mentioned the way that um, each of these suites is kind of a mix of maybe theorists that literary critics would be familiar with, at least in those literary theory surveys that, uh, that we all take as graduate students. One thinker that um, to me, I was introduced through this volume is Eduardo Viveras de Castro. And Joe, you um, co-wrote uh, an article with Aisha Ramachandran uh, in this volume, and you applied de Castro's thought to Spencer. 
I was struck by this quote from the Veras de Castro in the article, quote, if there's one thing that it falls to anthropology to accomplish, it is not to explicate the worlds of others, but rather to multiply our world, end quote. Can you talk to us about de Castro's cannibal cosmologies? What a great phrase. And how you read that model with Spencer's work. Sure, thank you. Um, so Viveros de Castro is part of a movement within anthropology um, that, that's, uh, that's often described as an, as an ontological term. This is the kind of um, broader designation. Um, and one thing that he in particular um, tries to do, though various thinkers within, within this um, area try to do, um, is to, as he often puts it, to take indigenous cosmologies seriously. That's one of his um, favorite phrases rather than, than kind of nullifying them in advance um, as sort of Western um, um, understandings of multiculturalism tend to do. So he makes this really interesting critique of multiculturalism, which is often kind of, you know, sort of um, trotted out as a kind of ambition or, a, or something we should all be thinking in terms of. Um, and he points out that the minute you use the language of multiculturalism, you've actually implicitly um, made your mind up in advance about what nature and culture are. Um, and so the, the, the assumption encoded within the very word multiculturalism is that there is this single unified thing called nature. Um, and then there are multiple cultures that bring their, their sort of different perspectives um, to bear on it. And what he points out via his ethnographic fieldwork in the Amazon is that Amazonian ontologies um, reverse or sort of invert this dynamic. So in the, in the Amazon, he argues, or for Amazonian people, there are um, there is only one culture, only one mode of being that all persons, that's to say humans, but also animals and spirits and others, that they all um, adopt or inhabit. But they, there are many natures, many, many um, physical, physical bodily natures that are irreducibly different from one another. And because of those differences, um, the, uh, these beings experience um, different worlds in the same way. So it's a, it's a kind of slightly... Uh, head-spinning idea um, that, that a jaguar, which is the, one of the favorite examples, experiences the world in the same manner that we do, but what it experiences is different because its body is, is different from ours. Um, and so Aisha and I, um, we sort of discovered a, sh a shared interest in this, in, in, in Viveros, de Castro, and in this whole school of anthropological thought that we'd come to independently of one another and began to discuss it together. And we were involved in an ongoing collaboration um, with uh, two other colleagues, Karina Johnson and Edward Wilson-Lee, thinking about the implications of this work for early modern studies, given how, you know, you know given the sort of um, extent of those um, early encounters with Amazonian peoples in the, um, in the 16th century. But this essay is a first experiment in asking how some of these early encounters uh, in the 16th century might leave their traces um, in the Fairy Queen particularly by um, producing figures. And the example we, we start the essay with is Malengin or Guile from book five, figures who have irreducibly different bodily natures in the manner I've just been, the, the manner I've just been describing, um, but whose cultural mode of being we can glimpse or inhabit um, when we read as part of the poem's kind of multiplication of ontological possibilities. So to go back to that quotation you read at the start, the idea is that rather than trying to um, interpret a figure like Malengin in terms of the, uh, the kind of categories of being that we bring to the poem. It's partly about saying, what if, um, what if this poem partly via Spencer's often very, again, sinister and um, disturbing uh, investment in indigenous modes of being and indigenous ontologies, what if that actually generates 
new um, uh, new irreducible possibilities of being that, that exceed the categories that we bring to the poem. And that I think is what Viveros means by multiplying our world. I'm going to jump around a little bit in the volume now. Um, Lydia Heinrichs, uh, Richard McCabe's, and Yulia Rizik's essays all deal at varying lengths with uh, the opening lines of the first canto of the Fairy Queen. David, would you mind reading uh, the first few lines for us? Sure. I won't try to do it in that uh, Monty Python falsetto, but um, I'll just read them straight. So uh, the lines go as follows. A gentle knight was pricking on the plain, clad in mighty arms and silver shield, wherein old dints of deep wounds did remain, the cruel marks of many a bloody field. Yet arms till that time did he never wield. Lydia Heinrich's essay um, converses Spencer with Deleuze, McCabe's essay uh, Spencer with Lefebvre, and Rizik's with Deleuze and Guattari, um, uh, with this passage. Um, David, can you walk us through how Heinrichs thinks of the mental space of Fairy Queen as a Deleuzean intensity in this passage? Um, then maybe we can talk about McCabe's reading of the social production of space and Rizik's discussion of the unreachable vertical and the infinite horizontal dimensions of allegory. Sure, I can try. Um, I think it would make more sense, though, to uh, move from Heinrichs to Rizik and then to McCabe, um, because both Heinrichs and Rizik use Deleuzean kind of thinking. Um, Heinrichs draws on Deleuze's interpretation of Spinoza um, and his ideas about what he calls affects, um, and she compares the characters of the Fairy Queen um, to these kind of Deleuzean affects by which I think what she means is something like differential intensities that come into being through their varying relations on what Deleuze calls a plane of imminence. A plane of imminence, I think, is the infinite field of affects and uh, assemblages and forms in which everything exists. Um, and it is a two-dimensional kind of field um, so Heinrichs thinks about the characters in the Fairy Queen as, in essence, nothing more or less than kind of indeterminate quantities of energy or desire. Um, and they're brought into being, she says, by their relational existence. Relation to other characters, to the spaces in which they move, um, in uh, reading the, these opening lines of the Fairy Queen, Heinrichs uh, suggests that the, the very enigmatic quality of these lines, the fact that they uh, don't really say what kind of plane we're talking about, where it is, who this gentle knight is, um, what kind of desire is pricking him forward. Um, the Fairy Queen here, she says, and habitually gives us something flat, not like a novel with the background and a three-dimensional character, but something two-dimensional, a surface where encounters happen, sheer kind of quantities of energy in motion, desire pricking. Um, and that seems to me like a great way to describe the poem itself as a sort of space, the flat page where encounters happen between essentially words. Words become something like uh, Deleuzean quantities of energy in Spencer's hands, I think. Um, 
Yulia Rijik's essay uh, also draws on the work of uh, Gilles Deleuze alongside Felix Guattari, the Thousand Plateaus are what she's referring to here. Um, and using that work, she writes about what she calls negative spaces in The Fairy Queen, um, by which I think she means precisely spaces like that opening plane or uh, the cave of Mammon, which she writes about at greater length. Um, and she describes these as overdetermined regions where interpretation moves in multiple directions at the same time. So in that sense, I think her reading is a kind of inside out version of Heinrich's reading. The spaces for uh, Rijek are not underdetermined potentialities, um, but overdetermined kind of actualizations of meaning. The plane is what she calls a horizontal space, which is ripe for allegory. But allegory, uh, as she points out, also has a kind of vertical dimension, a constitutive vertical dimension, she calls it, um, which is to say the implication of a higher meaning beyond the literal meaning. And what she's interested in showing is the tension between these two kinds of um, unreachable vertical and infinite horizontal dimensions of the fairy queen. McCabe is also interested in these opening lines and in space in the fairy queen, um, but in a much more kind of socio-political way, he's influenced by, um, he's putting together the work of Henri Lefebvre, the production of space. Um, and he says that these two works are uh, kin, essentially, uh, in their profound interrogation of the relations between power and location. McCabe, um, in reading these opening lines of the poem, like Heinrichs, thinks that the undefined, the elusive plane designates a space in which, at least theoretically, action unfolds into allegory um, in order to produce meaning. But for McCabe, this, this space is produced by that uh, drive to disciplining, the attempt to uh, in, 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 you know, force uh, meaning upon it, to bend it to the will of power, to bend that space. And he says that the fairy queen spaces seem always um, uh, penetrated by forces that define the meaning of events. Um, and he, 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 this is a great essay, uh, example of an essay which um, puts uh, a theorist and the, the fairy queen side by side in order to show facets of both, um, new facets of both. He um, he shows how putting them side by side can help us to see um, the way both Spencer's writing and Lefebvre's work um, destabilize their own premises. They're both kind of allegories that uh, endlessly uh, undo the disciplining effort uh, um, placed upon that space. Perhaps we can move on to Courtney Druzik's essay, which brings a Val Plumwood in a conversation with Spencer. Plumwood is probably one of the less familiar theorists in this volume, at least to me, um, which is really exciting. How do you read Druzik's uh, contribution in this essay, David? Um, yeah, Plumwood was new to me too when I came to this essay. Um, and I think Druzak is trying to rescue Spencer, really, um, through this juxtaposition of the Fairy Queen, rescue him from some of the accusations that Nam was referring to uh, in relation to um, 
colonialism and, and the, the kind of more sinister aspects of his work. Um, so Val Plumwood is a contemporary eco-feminist thinker who uh, is a thinker of material continuity and forms of non-human agency. Um, so interestingly related to uh, Viveros de Castro. Um, and Juzak uh, um, focuses on Duessa and describes her kind of non-human, amalgamative, discontinuous, feminized subjectivity. And she suggests that through this character, we're offered a template for understanding human relations um, with the more than human world as more continuous and open and not uh, as disciplining or uh, meaning laden than perhaps we are accustomed to accepting. So for Druzak, Duessa becomes a figure who inspires and not merely disgusts other figures like Red Cross or for Dubio, um, inspires them to become more ecologically fluid. Um, I think this essay also speaks to Cat uh, uh, Addis's essay in interesting ways. So again, there's a kind of um, um, uh, companionable thinking within companionable thinking um, in this in this volume. That's excellent. The next uh, couple of essays focus on Spencer's sonnets. Now, Joseph Perry's essay applies Jean-Luc Marion's thinking uh, on the erotic phenomenon and Patrick Aaron Harris's, but this is absolutely one of my favorite essays in the, the volume, um, looks at she and Nye's uh, thinking on cuteness. Um, how do these essays complicate our reading of Spencer's Amoretti? Um, they pull in very, very different directions, don't they? Um, pretty much opposite directions. Uh, Parry uh, uh, wants to set the sequence beside Jean-Luc Marion in order to see the kind of transcendent aspects of Eros in this sequence. Um, and Marion is a kind of Christian existentialist uh, understander of Eros. Um, who helps, according to Parry, helps us to clarify the paradoxes of embodied loving that lie at the heart of the Amoretti, paradoxes of giving and receiving, of loving eternally in the face of death, of moving on from one beloved to another, and of two becoming one. Um, so it's a reading of the Amoretti that edges towards love as transcendence, um, Patrick Harris, uh, uh, by strong contrast, um, reads the sequence as performing a kind of uh, helplessness and pitifulness uh, as a kind of manipulation. Um, uh, so he puts this sequence beside Shan Guy's re thinking regarding cuteness. Um, and he says that uh, Spencer is employing here acute poetics, he calls it, and he draws attention to the title, which indeed is a kind of cute title, uh, Amoretti, Little Loves or Little Cupids, um, and says that the sequence is a way of kind of negotiating an intimacy with both uh, the addressee of the Amoretti and the readers of the poem um, in order to elicit their pity and their care through its cuteness. Um, so cuteness is both a kind of affect and a kind of affectation here. And uh, Harris is interested in showing how the Amoretti's perversity can also challenge 
Ngai's conceptualization of cute commodities. So it works both ways. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That that um, was a, a very illuminating um, sort of comparison. Um, the next group of essays are on imagined companions. Andrew Wadowski talks about the role of counterfactuals and ethical self-formation through Kwame Anthony Apaya. Abigail Shin about the play of classical and popular culture through Johan Huizinga and Judith Anderson um, with, through Paul Ricoeur. Can you tell me about how this suite of essays fits into the larger volume now? Yeah, sure. Um, so the essays in this section on imagined companions take the point of companionability between Spencer and a philosopher to be the imagination. And at the same time, they foreground the critic's own use of the speculative imagination in kind of forging and building these connections. So the essays in this cluster bring out both the critical and creative aspects of companionable thinking. And they also, um, sorry, they also examine features that, that run through the volume as a whole, including various forms of abstract thought and the perpetual play of antitheses um, so, for example, popular and elite, or laughter and lament, or concept and experience. Um, and they think as well about the kind of lively interaction between multiple kinds of idealization in the realm of ethics. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the most interesting connections that they have. And as Leah Whittington's wonderful response that closes this section, both argues and demonstrates, companionable thinking can even involve personifying texts, conceiving of a text in the person of the author. So sort of taking a cue from Spencer's procedures there. Excellent. Um, the next group features Melissa Sanchez on Spencer with Julia Serrano, Amelia Sarah Barth on Spencer with Julia Kristeva, Eric Langley and Luke Pendergast on Spencer with Jacques Derrida and Hannah Crawforth on Spencer with Du Bois. Maybe we can give uh, short takeaways from each article, Joe. Sure thing. Um, yes, Melissa's essay on um, Peter Serrano's um, Whipping Girl uh, is interested in the ways in which um, transmisogyny can be seen as being both embodied, exemplified within, but also in certain ways disrupted by Spencer's practicing the fairy queen. She focuses um, on the Radigand um, sequence from book five. Um, I think one of the most interesting features of this essay though, is the way that Melissa connects the readings of those specific moments to wider um, practices in uh, citation that go beyond the states of the essay or even of the volume. Um, and she introduces um, a category that she defines as colonial citation, um, by which um, uh, certain divergences between historical and, and current forms of oppression are included through the assumption that, um, that, that they can be elided, that, that, that one, kind of, um, one kind of atrocity or one kind of diminishment can be can be used or employed to understand or explain another. It's a really interesting challenge in certain ways to the notion of intersectionality as something that can be really crucial to acknowledge um, uh, in, in many contexts, but that can lead to a kind of too easy 
kind of transposition between one form of oppression and another, whether now or or, or um, when seeking to understand the past. So that strikes me as one of its really large and complex um, sort of sort of challenges to uh, critical and political practice. Um, Emily uh, Baltese on Kristeva um, uses Kristeva's work to, again, this, this strikes me as one of the essays, and there are quite a few of them in the volume, that, um, that kind of return to uh, quite well-established questions or topics within Spencer studies, but use the, the companionable enterprise that they're undertaking to frame it in a really new way. So Emily's interested um, in the interplay in um, Spencer's poetry between exemplary fixity on the one hand and the, and the kind of unstoppable proliferation of meanings on the other, but she specifically understands the latter of these impulses via Kristeva's account of the semiotic um, and is particularly interested in the, in the female characters within the poem, the way that um, Kristeva genders semiosis um, and focuses in particular on, 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 on the figure of Amoret as the kind of embodiment of this um, semiotic excess pushed to uh, its extremes and allowed to proliferate into the most surprising new meanings. Um, Eric Langley and Luke Pendergast in their co-written essay on Derrida um, come to uh, the, the category of Spencerian errancy, bring it into dialogue with Derrida's notion of difference. Um, what I think is particularly exciting about this essay is the use they make of of Derrida's book, The Postcard, um, which was one of his most, well, one of his various uh, formally, um, formally innovative books, um, includes within it a long uh, one-sided correspondence. It's never really clear how real or imagined it is. Um, and Eric and Luke use The Postcard and, and, and Derrida's fascination in that book with missives and messages going, as, going astray um, to, to uh, think differently about the question of Spencerian digressiveness um, and the sending and, and receiving of messages within and from the poem. Um, and then Hannah in her essay aligns Du Bois's account of the double consciousness that's demanded of African-American subjects um, with the doubleness, the, with, with sort of double structure that Spencerian allegory relies upon, insists upon and creates for its readers. She um, uses the shared language of, veil, of veils and veiling that Spencer and Du Bois deploy or shows that in deploying this language, Du Bois is self-consciously participating in a much longer, in a, in, a, in a much longer tradition of allegorical representation and interpretation. Um, but she, um, she shows that, that uh, in a sense, Spencer, um, what we can understand as one of the failings of the poem, to go back to, I think you, you referred earlier John to, um, to Nam's account in her part of the introduction um, on the failures of thinking and this being as a, a, a consistent concern of the volume as much as its successes. That's certainly one of Hannah's points here that, that Spencer um, fails in a sense to acknowledge um, the uh, racialized implications or entanglements of the, of the allegorical language of veiling that he deploys. And that in a sense is something that Du Bois's thinking can um, productively supplement or bring to the fore or accentuate in its um, conspicuous absence from the Spencerian text. That's excellent. And maybe we can return to the collecting, the choice to collect those four essays together, because in hearing you talk about them, the Serrano and the Du Bois are kind of in tension with each other and the Kristeva and the Derrida. But there's an interesting, I don't know, um, um, movement inward and then movement outward. 
that, that we might return to. Um, finally, uh, we can turn to the final group of four essays by Owen Kane, J.D. Aynard, Stephen Guy Bray, and Rachel Eisendrop, and the afterword for the whole volume by Jeff Dolvin. Um, Nam, can you give us uh, capsule summaries of those essays? Yes, um, yeah, of course. So the volume, as you say, concludes with this cluster on style, followed by Jeff's afterword. Um, and each of the essays in this cluster are really carefully attuned to the styles of poets and paired philosopher. And they have in common a concern with pleasure and sensuousness in some form, as well as an interest in the inextricability of form and content. So Owen focuses on um, what Rancière calls reverie and the dreamlike rearrangement of scenes in book six of the Fairy Queen in The Legend of Courtesy. Um, JD contrasts the sweet snares of, of Spencerian harmony, particularly um, in the sound effects of the Fairy Queen to the enlivening powers of dissonance. Um, and he's thinking with Adorno here, and he makes a really wonderful case for the mutability cantos as being an example of late style um, in the way that they kind of with their dissonant energy explode the rest of the poem that they that they follow. Um, and Stephen Guybray untangles the pleasures of reading and writing in the Amoretti, as he at the same time reflects on his own long companionship with Spencer um, and with Barthes. And so this is a kind of a critical appreciation that also has a bit of memoir in it as well. Um, and closing this cluster, Rachel Eisendrath's response thinks really subtly about the exchange of similarity and difference that these essays each entail and the model of what she calls productive contamination that they offer, um, a way of kind of hosting an epistemological stranger and disrupting the usual self-consistencies of thought. And finally, to get to the last part of your question, um, Jeff, Dolvin, Jeff Dolvin's afterward um, is really beautifully positioned, I think, both within and outside of the volume. So following a kind of dizzy sequence of company, um, Dolvin turning his attention to Spencer's narrator, charts the contortions and twists of Spencerian self-talk. So the afterword both acknowledges the intellectual richness and the generousness of Spencer's poetry, but it also brings out its more kind of intractable and solitary elements. Um, thinking as well about the asymmetries of criticism with which our, the volume began. Thanks. Yeah, maybe we can circle back and talk about the Owen Cain essay for, for a minute, because um, one of the things that struck me about that essay was both the, the kind of productivity and generativity of um, the reverie, as Ranciere theorizes it, but also the kind of political limitations of that kind of lax um, association. And I, I, as I was reading it, it, it felt very meta because it felt kind of um, like in discussion with the larger themes of the volume, perhaps. I don't know, am I over, over reading or? Um, no, that's, I think that's great. That's really, that's a really interesting question and a way to kind of position it. Um, and I think that's right. I guess one of the ways to think about it might be the kind of the danger of, of endlessness. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think there are ways in the volume in which the kind of 
um, the ethics of variousness and constant transformation um, and change and mutability really is often presented as necessarily a positive thing. Um, but at the same time, if it kind of keeps going and we don't really know where it will end or if it will end, it kind of turns sort of strange and frightening as well. And it fails to commit to a particular position or a particular set of arrangements. So there's both kind of um, ethical potential in, in that mutable possibility and in the shifting and changes um, of reverie, but at the same time, they can kind of harden into their own excuse for actually taking a stand. Um, and I think Owen brings that out really well. And, and maybe we can also talk a bit about um, Guy Bray's essay about the, the pleasure of the text and he's thinking about Roland Barthes and um, in, in particular, the, the pleasures of companionship, what, what that might open up for us. David, I think I uh, you were going to pick up the last point. I was just gonna say that I really um, thought that exchange between you two just now was really um, very lovely and um, returns us to where we started thinking about the compelling and sinister sides of uh, Spencer. That's all. I'll just pick up um, the point you made about pleasure briefly, John. I think I think one of the um, one of the aims of the volume is to give plenty of room to those pleasures of companionability and perhaps more room in uh, in scholarly writing than it than it sometimes tends to find. So I've, I felt in, in issuing a call for papers for this volume, like one thing we might be doing, and I think this was borne out by some conversations I've had with contributors since then, is kind of allowing people to be open about some of the intellectual connections that they find themselves making, but that they, but that they would be usually more comfortable making in the classroom. I think we, we, we often allow ourselves to range more out of our chronological boundaries when teaching, or in conversation or in other places, but somehow have to be shunted to the side when um, when when writing and when sort of being an early modernist in a, in a, in a stronger sense. Um, so that was really important to allow space for that. I think we were also keen though, um, to not present companionability as something that's that, that's only an intellectual playground. So I think I think um, Stephen Guybray's essay is 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 really great um, in in opening up that sense of the pleasure of the text and the kind of the way in which Spencer has been a kind of recurrent um, point of reference for him, something that's kind of popped back to him in the way that Proust and others come back to Bath. Um, but we also wanted to be sure that in the in the course of the volume as a whole, there was space for companionability as something uh, frictive and difficult and complicated, and that and that bringing Spencer into companion with thinkers very different from him could illuminate mutual problems, mutual blind spots, um, complementarities, but also disparities. Um, and, and I think um, that's part of why we, 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 we like the word companionability so much, is, is it, it, it suggests something like friendship, but doesn't have to imply it. There is room for a variety of affective forms and, and moods within the scope of that term. And I just think that that's that that felt like quite an important feature of the volume as a whole to us. Um, and just to kind of jump in briefly on Stephen's essay, I think one of the things I loved about it was its focus on kind of circularity and like the forgetfulness of whether it was Spencer through Bart or Bart through Spencer, um, because so much of the volume thinks about kind of the asymmetries of the enterprise. And I just loved how he brought in that, that figure of circularity. 
um, in the way that he talked about the pleasure of reading. That, that's wonderful. If if um, scholarship, my scholarship was a reflection of, of the connections I make in the classroom, it would be a lot of Blade Runner and Paradise Lost pairings. Um, Maybe this would be an interesting a moment to turn to um, theory, the state of theory uh, in literary criticism, because I, I find the volume a, a really articulate and wonderful and generous um, display of what theory can do for literary criticism in 2023. Um, e even though most of us are no longer kind of siloed as a psychoanalytical critic or a post-colonial critic. We, we draw from many different um, fields and um, schools of thought. Um, can I uh, invite your um, thoughts on the state of theory and literary criticism? I, I can venture a few um, thoughts on that. I mean, certainly, as you've suggested, the volume is a, is a response to that kind of um, Sort of opportunity or predicament uh, that you're that you're describing. Um, we we do talk about this a bit in the preface to the volume, the way there isn't really now an established canon of theory, and that can feel exciting at times. That one doesn't have to silo oneself in the way you just described. Um, I think it can also be very disorientating. Um, and uh, and I you know I think certainly one of the attractions of of um, of post critique. Uh, which is a category that kind of hovers in the margins of the volume at various moments. I think one of the one of the appeals of that is that it kind of solves that problem for you, right? Because you can label a lot of what's been called theory as as critique, um, and sort of sweep it away in one in one gesture and decide where we're after all of it. Um, and and I think um, one of the one of the appeals to us about this model of companionable thinking is that it returns you to a set of writers. And, and enables you to think about them as writers. So rather than approach them as, as theorists in a way that already kind of abstracts them in some sense from their practice, um, this is a way of thinking. I, I, I think that's why, one way I've come to see the volume as, as it's been finished and as I've reflected on it collectively, is this is a way of thinking about, about poetry and theory as praxis mm -hmm. and, and bringing them together on that basis. And that seems like potentially um, a productive way forward to think about theory as a set of writerly strategies, as opposed to a set of abstractable positions, um, and and that that offers a way to bring to bring um, a body of poetic writing and a body of more conceptually orientated writing into dialogue with one another. Um, so that's that's part of where I see the volume as pointing. Well, that's great. Sort of dispelling a kind of dogmatic attachment to a specific approach um, and, and maybe being more strategic. Yeah, and more contingent. One of the things we liked about the term companion is that it tends to be for a certain period of time. You pick up a companion, you find yourself beside somebody and you think with them, talk with them, and then maybe that dissipates and you move on to other companions. Um, so it it loosens the kind of fixity of a, a theoretical position that one for a period of time needed kind of to take in order to forge one's way in the field. Um, I remember when I was doing my PhD um, in the 19, early 1990s, um, we had a graduate seminar where we went around the room and people were asked to kind of 
you know, put their flag pole in a particular position. I'm a psychoanalytic critic or whatever. And I didn't know what to say. I just kind of hung my head and said, I'm basically kind of a new critic who picks up certain thoughts and runs with them. Um, and I still feel like that, basically. Um, and uh, maybe we're kind of at the other end of that period of having to be a certain kind of critic. And maybe this volume will help move us in that direction a bit. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely kind of agree with all of that. And and think, yeah, that it's really important that the the theoretical and philosophical companions kind of don't become caricatures or representatives of particular schools. Um, and they're th thought about with kind of more precision and specificity, um, I guess, that we normally afford to the poet or the poetry. So it's kind of um, the poetics of critique as well and thinking about kind of the form and, and aesthetics of, of theory um, in more precise ways and sort of sidestepping what's kind of been dubbed the method wars um, and the idea that, yeah, there are particular schools kind of charging at one another and you have to kind of stake your claim in one of them. Yeah. I love all of that. The, the temporariness of our theoretical companions, the contingency, um, the um, resistance to um, armament, uh, as you mentioned, Nam. Um, something else I wanted to talk to y'all about were was the um, variety of contributors to this volume. You have senior Spencerians, mid-career scholars, early career scholars, tenured, tenure track, contingent faculty. It represents um, prestigious American universities, a major Indian university, British universities. How does gathering this broad coalition of interlocutors inform how this volume is uh, going about the staging companionable thinking? Um, shall, I, shall I go first? Okay, yeah, so I guess I wanna say like, thanks for pointing that out um, and noticing, because I think all three of us were really keen from the start of the project to include um, a range of career stages and affiliations and a kind of broad coalition, as you say, and to encourage this conversation across the volume. So we were really pleased um, with the kind of strong response that our call for papers um, yielded. And I mean, I think it's great intellectually in an obvious way, because it meant that the examples of philosophical and theoretical companions proposed ended up being surprising and various and reflective of a broad range of interests. But it was also really meaningful to work towards a common project and have this wide Spencerian community, especially at a time this was kind of taking place during the early days of the pandemic, in which um, fragmentariness and precarity in our field and our discipline felt increasingly pronounced. Um, so it was really, really important to, to my experience of editing the volume for sure. And I think that the scholarly camaraderie it displays in its composition and in the conversations it includes um, is really exciting, sort of companionable in, in practice as well as in thought. I, yeah, I completely agree with everything Nam just said. It was it was um, really crucial to us from the get-go to have that that sense of a, of a kind of different kind of gathering of thinkers, that that's true of the companionable thinkers who are in the journal, who are in the articles, subtitles, but also true of the thinkers um, who are gathered together as authors. Um, I suppose the only thing I'd add from a personal perspective is that it was partly for me about, um, I suppose, paying forward some of the 
some of the good experiences I had early in my career in the in the Spencer world um, when I was a graduate student and making first forays into um, the wider scholarly community and encountering especially smaller um, subgroups um, that constitute themselves around a particular author. And those can be um, strange and complicated worlds that you're suddenly entering um, and they vary a lot. Um, and uh, and I have and, and have always had sort of, you know, mixed feelings, misgivings about them because the smaller a community of that sort is, um, the, the, the higher the risks in some ways of, of you know, gatekeeping and in-crowdiness and, um, and, you know, nepotism and all the things that come with those kind of structures. Um, and I'd always felt that the Spencer world was, um, was a really good version of that, you know, one that had been very, very encouraging of me and other people of my, of my generation. Um, and and that, that did also reflect something about Spencer or the more generous side, or, or at least the more generous, capacious sides of Spencer that we're, that we're describing, you know, or that we're, 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 we're trying to acknowledge as one part of a complex whole. Um, there's, a, there's still a sense, I think, that, he, that Spencerians are just so happy to meet someone else who's read The Fairy Queen and, and liked it, that they're keen to sustain that conversation um, rather than, you know, prove that you know more about it than the person you're talking to, whatever it might be. Um, and so I think in the midst of this, there is a kind of, you know, I feel like it is making a case for a certain kind of return to a super canonical author um, in a in a in a time where that case is often for good reasons, I think, getting harder to make. But I but I would really want to keep making it partly because um, the the um, the richness of an author like like Spencer and of the traditions of criticism and response and debate that he's provoked mean that this is not you know that, that he remains a site for convergence, um, a site around which scholars at various stages in their career can can continue. To converge and to discuss with him as a kind of shared point of reference and debate um and i think the volume um well i hope the volume makes a case for that kind of collective as well this is amazing this is really just dawning on me the the way this volume can be read as a way of thinking um through the the isolation the the transformation of scholarly community through the COVID pandemic um, and that's that's kind of incredible finding the um, carrying forward, Joe, what you were saying about the Spencer community before the pandemic, but also thinking through that transformation as as Nam was saying. Um, that's, that's something that hadn't occurred to me, but gives the volume an extra a layer of complexity. Uh, now that this volume is out in the world, um, finding companions of its own. Well, what are you turning your attention to? Do you have scholarly projects in the work? We haven't figured out who's speaking first and who next. Um, Nam, why don't you go ahead? Um, okay, sure, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so a Spencer-related project that I'm working on um, is my first book on poetics of the material in Spencer and Milton. Um, and it's, it's interested in the connections between poetic form and figuration and in metaphysics and moral thought. Um, and it thinks about kind of various topics across their poetry, including nature, love, and hope, um, and the problem of prime matter and the concept of accommodation. Um, so that's, that's one of them. And a second thing that I'm really um, excited to get started on 
is the writing of a new introduction to the Oxford World Classics um, edition of King Lear. Um, so yeah, those, those are the two that I'm thinking about at the moment. I didn't know you were doing that, Nan. That's great. I really look forward to reading that. Um, both of those things. Um, so Joe and I are continuing our collaboration, our, our intellectual companionship, um, by starting this summer to edit the next Cambridge University edition of uh, The Merchant of Venice, um, which I'm really excited about. It'll be really fun to work with Joe on that. Um, it's a seven-year project, so... <laughs> we're in it for the long haul joe um i'm also completing a book on shakespeare's salutations greetings and partings and uh thinking about temporality and alterity and those kind of interstices of um encounters in shakespeare's works um that has been a long time in the in the making and is getting there thanks um yeah so this project for me has been um part of a of a very uh, happy um, sort of larger pivot in my in my intellectual life towards collaboration, having been a bit kind of head down with my own stuff for a number of years. This has been a very happy collaboration um, and I'm involved in a couple of others, all I think catalyzed in different ways by my Spencer work and especially by my um, involvement with the Sp International Spencer Society, which is a very collaborative group. Um, so I'm, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, continuing to think um, with Aisha Ramachandran and two other colleagues about anthropology and the ontological turn and how that might feed into early modern studies. We're beginning to think about what a collaborative outcome of uh, perhaps a co-written book coming out of that might look like. I'm involved in a project with Leah Whittington, who's a respondent in this volume, um, about intersections and overlaps between creative and critical writing. Um, working, I'll be working with with David on the Shakespeare, as he mentioned, and then ticking away in the background of this, um, something to do with Spinoza and his literary afterlives. I think that's going to be the next solo thing. Uh, but I'm very much enjoying, um, in the interim, doing various things in various kinds of company. It's excellent. We will keep our eyes out for those projects. Uh, thank you all so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, John. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. Thanks, John. It's been great. Really, really fun. Thanks, John. It's been really good.